0: Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists with a new episode of Global Caveat. On today's episode, we're going spelunking. If you don't know what that means, keep listening. And if you do know what that means, also keep listening, because we're going to talk about a lot
1: of different stuff. But first, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. Global Caveat is a listener-supported podcast, which means we appreciate any amount or form of support you can give us. We do have a Patreon page on our website. And just for one, three, or $5 a month, which is totally doable, uh, you can become a patron. We have cute names for them too. So if you donate $1 a month, you're an outbreak. If you donate $3 a month, you're an epidemic. And you can even suggest future guests for our show if you're an epidemic. If you like what we do and you love our guests, please leave us a review, subscribe, and spread the knowledge. And
0: speaking about spreading knowledge, on today's episode, we will be talking with Gabby Serrado Marks, a PhD scientist studying paleoclimate. She also lives with EDS and will be telling us more about working in the field of the chronic disease.
1: Hi, Gabby. Uh, did I say your name right? Yeah, you did.
2: I was
1: about to say okay. five stars. Yay. Yay! So it's not Gabby, it's Gabby. Yeah, tell yeah. everyone. <laughs> So, uh, hello. Um, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where our listeners can reach you?
2: Sure. So, I am Gabi Serrado Marks. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate at MIT, and I study paleoclimate, which is past climate change over a couple thousand years. Um, so, clearly not global health, but my... Uh, Side interests are like accessibility and disability. And you can find me on the internet. I'm the only Gabi Serato Marks that I know of. So oh. Oh. you should be able to search for my name, but I am on uh, Instagram and Twitter as G Serato Marks.
1: That's pretty cool. You're like the only Gabi yeah. Serato Marks on the internet. I'm pretty sure. Really yeah. awesome, but also slightly
0: terrifying.
2: It's a little weird, yeah. I can't be like, no, that was someone else with the same... <laughs> it's because my parents combined my mom's last name and my dad's last name. And so there's very few people, such mm-hmm. none, who have that exact same combination
1: of last yeah. names. Thank you for being the unique Gabi Serato-Marx young yeah. Global
2: <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you said you do... Um, Paleo climate change? Yes. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I go to caves in northeast Mexico, and I've been in Belize, in the Yucatan, all over Mexico and Central America. And I study how the chemistry that's recorded in stalagmites can tell us about past climate. So on a very basic level, the stalagmites will tell us how wet or dry it was, um, when they were growing, so my like pet stalagmite right now is about six thousand years old. It grew for five hundred years, and as it grew, it acts as like a logbook of wet and dry conditions
1: in the past. And why is it important to know the conditions of whether it was wet or dry, how wet and dry?
2: In part, it's because in some places we just have no idea. In some places, we already have other records that can kind of give us an idea. But for some places, it's just like the very first one. And we're just getting a, like, a basic answer of like, did this place have droughts? Is it like the way it is now or is it really different? Um, but as we look forward to future climate change, it's going to past climate change data will be used in models that are used for like, predicting future change. So you can run the models backwards and say like, OK, what do you get if you ask it what the climate was about 6000 years ago? and compare that to the data. And so it's a way to check if the models are behaving in a way that's accurate based on what we know. Oh. okay. That's
1: but pretty cool. 12, yeah, so.
0: and I mean, that's also very relevant to global health because it involves climate change, actually, Yeah, um, and the impact on planet and humans. But before other questions for people that might not know, what is a stalagmite? Oh, great question.
2: A stalagmite is a cave rock, and it's the kind that grows on the floor. So not the ones on the ceiling, those are stalactites. I get asked all the time how I tell the difference between them, but stalactites aren't used very often for paleoclimate, and stalagmites are used all the time. So you can just say, I remember, because (laughs) stalagmites are the useful ones. I don't know how that helps you remember (laughs) the names. Um, but I use the ones that grow on the bottom and then they grow upwards layer by layer over time.
1: So you're essentially studying rocks that are in caves. Yes. Okay. And that informs cl- past climate change. Yes. And as someone who is very ignorant about your field, <laughs> my next question is how does that apply to climate change in outside of caves?
2: The climate in the caves is very closely related to what's happening above the cave. So even though it's just one rock at the bottom of one cave that is in just one tiny area of Northeast Mexico, there have been a lot of studies that show that those stalagmites record actually regional climate. So it's not global climate, but it does record climate um, over like several kind of counties or states or countries of, of space it sort of depends where you are, right? Cause borders are fake, but it records climate, which is patterns of weather in significant enough spaces that we can use the data
1: okay hmm. so I remember a while back like way back you were talking about your ability to go into field work and mm-hmm. how that affects just a lot of different things like the physical aspect and then the mental aspect so can you talk a little bit about um about that because I, I don't exactly remember what you said but I remember you had discussed it a bit yeah. on your Instagram
2: um, I'm getting ready to go on fieldwork in about three weeks, so this has been on my mind in a big way. Um, but I was diagnosed about a year ago with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, which is a collagen disorder that impacts every part of my body. So, And the main symptoms that it gives me are um, widespread pain and fatigue. And so I have pain basically all over my body all the time. Is what that means. I live at about a 6 out of 10 is like a normal day. So I didn't really know that that was going to be the situation when I started being a cave geologist and started started my research on caves that are pretty hard to reach even when you're fully able-bodied or abled. Um, so it was a challenge when I first realized that I was going to be dealing with this forever, like this disease, this whatever you want to call its condition is not going to go away. And so I have to figure out how to adapt to pretty much everything I do, including fieldwork, to you know, do it with the least amount of pain and still be affected. So a lot of getting ready for fieldwork is just like endurance type stuff. And people think, I mean, I'm like running 5Ks. But I'm just like walking for 10 or 20 minutes when normally I don't. Um, and just standing for long periods of time because that can be difficult for me also. So I guess I should say that the caves that I go to are about like a forty five minute hike from the car usually wow. and then we have to hike actually into the cave. So we go up a mountain and then go into the hole and then like rappel down and climb down in the cave. So it's a lot of physical activity just to even get to the cave site. And then once we're there we're doing like water sampling and you know taking different measurements that is a little bit less active. Like once we're in the cave it can actually be a little bit more relaxed than getting there
1: that's a lot
0: of work and this is just like a kind of question with you saying that you're like preparing endurance wise so you said that the pain that's associated with wait what are the letters in er
2: eds
0: eds okay Uh, so it's like your entire body so is there any type of like desensitizing treatment because i know crps which is the complex regional pain syndrome Right. I know that they have, like you can do desensitizing stuff. Cause like, that's one of the few things I remember from being in physiotherapy like, and in school for that. Um, yeah. is like learning how to do like desensitization for that, but it's your whole body. So right. is there any sort of like sand machine you can? Put your whole body into. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, so for people that don't know what I mean, like there's like this warm sand thing that, like, if it's on your wrist, you can put your hand in there and like it regulates movement and pain and stuff to help like desensitize the area. None of you can see that I'm making motions with my hands because this is a podcast. (laughs) But so I'm just trying to like understand how possible, like you know, full body.
2: Yeah, like what the different treatment options. Yeah. Um, it's pretty limited. Mostly it's physical therapy to strengthen and stuff. Yeah. Because um, my joints can actually pretty much spontaneously dislocate. And so I have to strengthen them so if that that doesn't happen in a cave because that would be really bad. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: so I do a lot of physical therapy. I'm doing it for my shoulders right now. And the other treatment is like pain control for the most part. So not so much desensitization, but I have like lidocaine patches. And so those go in the areas. I have three and they cover a couple square inches. So I put, I get to put three on per day. And so I put those on in the most painful areas. And I also do an IV lidocaine treatment every couple months. So I'm doing it next week, which is going to be two weeks before I go on field work. So I'm hoping that that will set me up for success and I'll have very limited pain in the field. That's the goal. So I actually scheduled... The IV lidocaine, kind of with field work in mind, because I wanted to make sure that I would be set up.
1: Yeah. When you do those treatments, does it bring you down from a six out of ten at all?
2: The patches kind of keep me at a six, or maybe even to like a five or four if it's a really good day. Mm-hmm. Um, the IV lidocaine is like magic. That I get, and I'm totally pain free for as long as it's lasting. Last time it lasted about a week for me, so I was. Entirely pain-free for
0: week. amazing. And you said that you scheduled it to kind of go with when your field work is going to be, so you've adjust your life. Like you are taking precautions and like preparing and getting prepped as best you can to go out into the field. But does anyone on your team also like prepare in case that you need assistance in any way? Or like you like if your like shoulder were to dislocate or if anything like that, like is anybody trained or qualified to help in that type of setting or situation
2: that's a good question um the short answer is no no one is really um trained or qualified like we don't go with doctors or people who are you know actually someone was just wilderness first aid certified so i guess that's something that's more than nothing i should say but the one of the teammates that I go with is actually type 1 diabetic, so we're quite the crew of cavers with our <laughs> health problems. Um, but the nice thing is that we all have to take a lot of breaks, and it's very, um, it's humid in the caves and around the caves, so it's nice to be able to take a lot of breaks and have snacks and hydrate and stuff for all of us, but that just ends up benefiting me a lot because I need the breaks. But I carry a sheet of paper with all my emergency info and it says how to treat me. So it basically says like I have this condition, my joints will spontaneously dislocate. Um, and it's in my phone too. And part of the reason I do that is so that people don't think that the people who bring me in are like lying or are confused about what happened or something. Because if you bring someone in with a dislocation, that usually means that there was like a traumatic incident, like a crash or a bad fall something like that so i try to make sure it's really clear that this can just happen by accident and they also know that if it's a choice between dislocating one of my joints and like letting me fall backwards into a cave to pull me up (laughs) and dislocate it. it so we have we had to clear that uh make that very clear going forward that you know if there's ever a case where we're helping each other and they're supporting me as i climb up or something like shove me if you have to don't let me fall into the (laughs) pit of doom (laughs) just how it feels sometimes when you're in a cave
1: that's funny you had to have that conversation
2: i know it's like not a very normal thing to have to go through on the team but they're very supportive so that helps a lot
1: that's really good um yeah definitely having that support is Super helpful.
0: I mean, it's awesome that your team is supportive and that you have that environment when you're in the field. Like, that's great.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing. I don't think I would be able to cave with a team that either didn't know about my situation or was, like, not super welcoming um, because it would just be unsafe to not tell them. And if they made me feel, like, you know, like a burden or, like, I wasn't helpful, then I just wouldn't go. Like, I would yeah. just say, sorry, I'm unavailable. And I would really miss out on that like, educational opportunity. And it's a really helpful scientific thing to just see what the um, cave looks like and the environment. Yeah. So I would miss out on that.
1: So you said you were diagnosed last year. Yeah. Um, but how long before you, you were actually diagnosed with something that you felt like was right? Because um, yeah. I know with pain, it can go a lot of different directions and it takes a lot of time. And also, was there ever like a starting point that you remember where you? St- we were like, you know, I'm feeling a lot of pain. That doesn't seem normal.
2: Yeah, I was initially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which is very, very common with EDS. And some people say that you can have both fibromyalgia and EDS. And I don't totally understand like the criteria for fibromyalgia at this point. I just kind of know that, at least for my doctor, I was diagnosed with that as a way to sort of say, sorry, I can't help you. Like, you have this thing, so you're on your own like not it's in your head you know she never said that but this is something that you can deal with with a psychologist and with some exercise and like good luck so a lot of the times it gets used as this like bucket for people who don't know how to like treat you um and that doesn't mean it's not real or that people who have fibromyalgia like just need a new diagnosis i think it's like totally a real and valid thing i think it's just sometimes when you have something else people don't dig hard enough and they put you in that bucket Mm. but it took about two and a half years um to really get a solid diagnosis of eds and i saw i just counted recently i think it was five different doctors um which is was a huge privilege to be in boston and to be able to keep saying like you know when i was told by a rheumatologist like i think you have something going on but go see this other rheumatologist and to be able to have the time and the flexibility and the money to pay those copays and go until someone finally was like okay i understand your case and i think you have eds and kind of walked me through all that but it took a long time of a lot of testing and i tried changing my diet i tried basically everything under the sun I've meditated, I've done yoga, all these things that people tell people in pain to try. And I, it was a a very frustrating process
1: to go through that. Yeah. I can only imagine. I mean, five doctors is a lot.
2: Yeah. As like specialists too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And do you have any, I don't know, because in medicine um, and in public health, you know, Mm -hmm. there's more conversations now about believing in patients who have pain. Mm -hmm. number one, and then believing in women who experience pain. That's Mm -hmm. like a separate thing. And as someone who has a pain-related issue or however you define it, um, Mm -hmm. and going through that process, what was that like? I mean, you you said it was hard. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for you. Yeah, (laughs) right.
2: It was um, something that I think I didn't understand at all until I was in it. Like, I... For that, I'd had very good experiences with doctors. I sort of was like, yeah, doctors know everything that they need to know. And if you go and you ask for help, they'll give you the help. And so kind of experiencing that that wasn't the case when I was trying to figure out this pain stuff was kind of like sort of a sad realization to come to, but I think it's really important to know and remember that like doctors are just people like obviously you guys
0: know this like
2: you know there's just because someone has a medical degree that doesn't mean that they know absolutely everything about your conditions or just about every medication that exists in the entire world you know like I think I had unrealistic expectations for doctors so I had to really learn how to advocate for myself and keep track of my symptoms in a clear way so that I wasn't just going in and saying I'm in pain, because then they would say, well, what kind of pain? Where is it? Does it happen in the morning or at night? And I was sort of just like, I don't know. I'm a grad student. (laughs) I wake up, I'm in pain. I go to lab, I'm in pain. You know, like, I was just sort of at first like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem normal to just be in pain all the time. And so I realized that I had to, like, learn how to be more specific and educate myself about, you know, why they're asking these things and, you know they're asking if i'm stiff in the morning because that's a very telltale symptom of rheumatoid arthritis and so then now when a doctor kind of starts along those lines and is like okay so are you stiff at this time i can now list off and be like i'm not stiff more specifically in the morning or in the evening <laughs> like i don't notice my pain being different at this time i don't have swelling in my joints so you know just realizing that i needed to be the, I needed to be my own quarterback on my medical team and to know my own history and to know as much as I could of my conditions as, as possible. But it was overall very, very difficult. I have friends who have medical PTSD from the process of having their diagnoses questioned and going to the ER with dislocations and being told, like, oh, you're just seeking pain medication. You know, you're, you're just... You want drugs, basically, and having to sit in that amount of pain for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And the effect of having a doctor who is in this great position of power over you and literally has the choice between, at least it feels like it when you're in the patient chair, has the choice between helping you and not helping you and being told, like, I'm not really sure if there's anything we can do. Like, I guess you'll have to see another doctor. And you know that 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 appointment's three months away is extremely frustrating It's really easy to get down on the whole system and, like, i want to burn it to the ground and just, like, start over and, like, not have any of this medical red tape and all the insurance calls. And that's where I'm feeling right now. I'm really frustrated with, like, how many different offices and people I have to coordinate with just to get the care that I need. Yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question. That's just, like, my feelings about the medical complex.
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course. Okay. and I mean, for me, I, I look at a lot of health systems and just yeah. how, I mean, the U.S. healthcare system is a special one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're so fragmented and yeah. that, that affects, and insurance essentially runs everything. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah.
1: And with that, then it comes down to doctors. And like you said, yeah, doctors are human. There are good ones out there. There are ones that don't really care about you out there too. Yeah. And unfortunately, the reality also is that doctors operate under this system as well. So then the people who are affected are their patients. Mm-hmm. And then if it, if the patient ends up receiving not so quality care, then it really sucks. Yeah. right. <laughs> it really that, sucks.
2: Yeah. I've noticed throughout this whole process that a lot of the time I'm the youngest person in the waiting room, like especially at the rheumatologist's office, which it's mostly people with arthritis or it's just like, you know, 70 year olds, 80 year olds. <laughs> mm-hmm. They sort of look at me like, why is this 25 year old in here with
1: us? That's funny you say that. I actually, so I see a rheumatologist. Yeah. Like every six months or so, because I was initially diagnosed with lupus, mm-hmm. but then my symptoms just kind of went away. And they're like, um, hmm. uh. so they would, they, I get regular blood tests. And, like, according to my blood test, something is still wrong with my immune system. Mm. But I'm just not, like, presenting as um, loudly as I used to. Yeah. But, so I see a rheumatologist, like, every six months, and I am the youngest person. Yeah,
2: you know. totally. <laughs> You're just surrounded by people who
1: are, they don't really look like you. <laughs> yeah, I told yeah, I, I definitely know what you mean by that.
2: <laughs> yeah. But at least no one's telling them, like, Well, I guess people say different things when you're old, but no one's telling them, like, I don't believe that you're in pain or, like, maybe you should see a psychologist. I guess then once you're older, it's like, well, that's a normal part of aging, which is really frustrating, I'm
1: sure. Have you ever had, then like, a really good experience with a visit to the doctors where you felt really affirmed and empowered?
2: Yeah, I had one recently, and I was, like, in tears when I left because I was like that was so great that was like, such an amazing
1: appointment
2: and I had been so nervous going into it for nights and nights before that I would just be like thinking about how nervous I was and then I left and it was such a relief when it was good but this was a doctor who had an MD PhD in genetics and she was only a few years older than I am and she came in she looked me right in the eye she said hi it's nice to meet you and she introduced herself She shook my hand and she continued to look at me as she shook my hand. Sometimes I get like the kind of drive by like, hi, nice to meet you, shake the hand and immediately go over to like look at the computer screen. And so she like took that five extra seconds to like stand in front of me and actually talk to me as a person. That made such a difference. And then as she spoke with me, she took notes, but she always let me finish my sentence before she would ask me another question. And there's some stat out there that it's, like, the average amount of time before someone interrupts a patient, it's, like, I think it was, like, 20 seconds or something like that, Um, maybe even less than that. Um, But, yeah, it just... I didn't realize how used to being interrupted I am. I try to keep it really short, but I still get interrupted at the doctor's office all the time. So this woman would, like, let me finish, listen, and then ask me her next question and actually take notes on what I said so I felt really listened to and um, she walked me through exactly what she was going to talk to the other doctors about as sort of like an action items list like you would at the end of a very good meeting (laughs) so she was like okay I'm now going to do these things you're going to do these things how does that sound and like looked me in the eye and she wasn't walking out the door as she said that and I was like that's great here are my questions she answered them and then we were done and I was like this is Great. I only want this woman from now on. <laughs> um, wow. it makes such a such a huge difference when you get a provider
1: like that. Yeah, like they take their time, they look at you, you feel listened to.
2: Yeah. And like a person. Like you're yeah. not just another folder or like, you know, a twenty minute slot in their day, but they realize that you're someone that they have a responsibility to treat as best as they can.
1: I'm so glad you got that experience.
2: I know, me too. I gotta find her again. She was a... She's like a... Not an intern. A fellow, I think. She's Uh still a trainee. And so I don't actually get to choose whether I see her or not because it's just like whether she's around. But I'm going to try to get them to like add it to my chart that I really liked her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing.
2: Yeah, the fellows are very hit or miss. And (laughs) I think it's in part because... They're, uh, most of them that I see are anesthesiologists, um, because they specialize in the pain stuff. But I think some of them sometimes have not really spoken with a lot of patients who are awake. (laughs) They're used to (laughs) patients who are sedated. (laughs) Because I've had one who said to me, oh, so do you have, do you have any mental health conditions? I was like, fine, fine to ask. And I was like, uh, yeah, like, I see a psychiatrist, I take two medications, and he was like, oh, so do you have major depressive disorder? And I was like, I mean, I guess, like, I don't know, I, I see, a, see a therapist, they don't really sit you down and say, like, you have major depressive disorder. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, what is this? And then he says yeah, like, to the other doctor, ask that. like yeah. Like he says, the other doctor, she's on a lot of psych medications. And I was like, I'm on two, <laughs> and like even if I am, he said it in this very like value judgment way. And I was like, wouldn't you want me to be on all the medications I need to feel good and like make it to this appointment?
0: I mean, bedside manner is so critical.
2: Yeah, it's. I feel like it's something everyone can relate to also, right? Like, everyone has had good and bad doctor's experiences.
0: Which is why I also think it's so surprising when doctors have terrible bedside manner because, like, if they were the patient, would they want themselves as their doctor?
2: Right! Like, do you hear yourself? <laughs> I, I totally agree.
0: Yeah. Okay, but, like, going back, like, mm. backtracking a little bit, mm-hmm. you said that, like, you're very lucky to, or like, I don't even think it should be lucky. It's like t- just common courtesy. You have a field team mm-hmm. that cares. That is nice. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that are humans. Yeah. That are <laughs> people. Uh, but you don't have any, like, anything that's stopping you from being able to do that kind of work, Mm -hmm. but do you feel like that kind of support that you get with your field team, do you feel that you get that in the academic setting?
2: So far, I have. Um, I've been really lucky. I still feel really lucky to feel like that because I've had friends and sort of seen it happen where other people have people say to them, like, maybe you should leave the program or maybe... This isn't really the right place for you right now, and you should take some time off. Especially with mental health diagnoses. I know that can happen a lot, Mm -hmm. even if that's not what the person actually wants. Mm. For me, my advisor said, if you ever need to take time off, let me know. But For now, I'll assume that you want to continue in the program and continue to be full-time. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I want. Thank you. So for me, it's been really nice to have people only kind of support me in that way. But it's Mm -hmm. still very scary to even disclose all the stuff that's going on because I have always been worried that people will find out, you know, people higher up at MIT or in, like, the environmental health and safety kind of conditions and say, like, if you're having weakness in your arms, you shouldn't work in the lab. And if you, you know, if your hands shake, you shouldn't be allowed to work with strong acids. and. Mm -hmm obviously safety is the most important thing so I get that but at the same time I want to be able to make those decisions so like when my hands are really shaky I don't work in the lab and I don't work with acid and if I do have weakness if I ask other people to pour the heavy stuff for me because I know I need to be safe so so far I've been lucky that no one has made those decisions on my behalf and I've been able to kind of weigh that for myself when I need to
1: mm-hmm. I mean you're talking about the agency that's given to you right Mm -hmm. Um, which I think you bring up a really good point in talking about that ability to have the agency to make decisions for yourself Mm -hmm. because I think that is a fear among people who have a some kind of physical disability or mental disability Mm -hmm. or maybe at risk for something I think that is a very real fear because the stigma around it is that you are somehow incapable. Right. You can't make your own decision. Right. So then when that feels like it can be imposed on you by bureaucratic systems, mm-hmm. that, I mean, yeah, that feels like a huge, um, barrier, but it's, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, it sounds small to say things like, yeah, I have a really supportive advisor. I have a supportive you know lab but it's Mm -hmm. like a huge difference
2: yeah it really does and the support network around me too like of my fiance of my parents all of whom live i mean i live with my fiance my parents live only like 20 minutes away from me and just having supportive people in my life who even my internet friends like you guys who like Mm -hmm. uh, you know understand that there's stuff going on with me and sometimes i'll post on my social media about like stressful things that are going on health-wise and I always get all these really nice messages It makes it makes me feel a lot less alone so having that support network in all facets of my life like both in the lab and just me as a person is so so helpful
1: what would you say to others who may be in the same boat as you I think the most important thing is
2: to find other people even if it's not the same condition that you have, find other people who are also struggling with their health or their mental health, whatever it is, because having that like empathy on a really personal level will make you feel so much less alone. And I think it gets rid of that idea of like, either you're making it up or you're being overdramatic or whatever it is. If you have friends who can say, yeah, that's happened to me too. That helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so just finding a support network and whether that's people who have the same experiences or different ones, it's just
1: important to have. Yeah, That makes sense.
0: So going back a little bit, is there anything about your research that you'd like to share or what you're working on or what you've learned?
2: I think the one other related thing is just like water availability, um, because that's really what I study is rain and, and water how much of it there was in the past. Um, so it makes me really frustrated to think about all these, you know, about rainfall and really grand scales. of Like, oh, it was wet in this region. And then come out of the cave and have to drink bottled water because the water that comes out of the tap isn't safe to drink. Um, mm-hmm. So thinking about these long timescales like 6,000 years or even 1,000 years ago, the, there was enough water. Even now there's enough water mostly, but it's not even safe to drink. And that is really tough to see coming from the U.S. where, at least in my town, I've always been able to just drink straight out of the tap. So that's kind of like where the urgency comes from for me is we have to figure out this climate data from the past and for the present now. Because even with the amount of water we have now, people don't have enough to drink. Mm. Mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of the other like health connection but other than that it's mostly just me going into caves with my friends so
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean no I think the work that you're doing is honestly super interesting and I'm sorry for my lack of more specific questions it's because I literally know like nothing about um, that's okay yeah but from what you've told us so far I mean I'm Coming from a health perspective, like, I'm making those health connections, right? So, like... Yeah, you see it. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And the climate, like, when you said climate, very early on, I was like, oh, that's, like, directly related to global health for sure. Yeah, right. You know, climate change is affecting a lot of different things. Um, And it makes me wonder, then, with your research and your work, like, what's your big vision um, if you had no limitations whatsoever Mm. and you could... You could do this work and you knew it would be successful and it could enact change on a population. Like what would what would that be?
2: Man, yeah. you can't even see my face but I'm like making a big overwhelmed face. <laughs> 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 but I think I think this is smaller than you're even asking me to think. But I would love to be able to bring like a whole school group from the town where I do my research into the cave and say like, involve them in the field research that I do. Um, I think that's something that's somewhat possible. We might have to change around how we access the cave a little bit, (laughs) but with enough money and support, that is totally doable. Um, And I'd like to do that both from, like, the educational perspective and just to build in some more pride at the natural environment and be like, look at this cave that you know is here, we all know is here. But it's always been really hard to access or impossible to access because the equipment to get down into it is expensive or the training isn't there or whatever it is. But to kind of bring people into a space that's theirs and say, this is what I do in here, what do you do in here? Like, what is your history in this space? Mm-hmm. Um, and just mm-hmm. work with kids and people in the area. But the big, really dr- cool. yeah, yeah. the big dream would be, like, figure out, how much water there's going to be in 20 years and inform policy there, but that's further down the line than I <laughs> am dreaming right now. I'm trying to just get through the end of my PhD. <laughs> what,
1: you're not going to win a Nobel Prize by the end of your PhD?
2: Uh, unfortunately, no. <laughs> it does make me feel better, though, that this, I don't know how to say her last name, Katie Bowman, Bo- the Black Holes woman. Oh, Yeah. yeah. She processed this data three years ago, and so I'm like, okay, it's all right if it takes a long time. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it can take years and years and years to get
2: your black hole picture, but that doesn't mean it won't get seen eventually. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I also think your small dream and big dreams are totally possible. So Mm -hmm. I really love the small dream, honestly. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, right? Like, it's also just like you touched on it, making it so the people that already live there can actually know what is going on with their land like that's where they live they yeah should, a lot of people don't have that understanding of like what's available what resources right. exist like how things interact with each other like i don't i don't know what's going on inside of caves but it'd yeah be like, right. neat if there was one like you know in my backyard for someone to be like hey i know what's going on in here let's let me like here we go like, yeah <laughs> so right. yeah
2: it's controversial to build steps into caves like or to make it easier to go in because sometimes then there's more damage or there's unregulated access but i think a lot of the times having show caves or tourist caves is just super beneficial for
0: conservation efforts and education it's like getting back in touch with the environment and earth and nature in a way that a lot of people have not had it like ever or like in a very long time yeah right so
1: yeah. I think caves yeah. are super fascinating. I mean, I in Colorado Springs, there's a cave tour mm-hmm. that you can do, and I've been there, I think, once or twice, and that's where I learned like stalagmites and stalag- mm-hmm. you know st- st- stalactites, stalactites, right? yeah, stalactites. <laughs> and then um, they do the whole thing where they take you like deeper in, and they they turn off the light. And they're like mm-hmm. you literally cannot see anything. You know. mm-hmm. And it's pretty cool. Like, And I I went as a... It was a school field trip. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really cool just seeing, like, this is what a cave is. And, you know, this is how people get in if there wasn't, like, a clear pathway <laughs> set. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how dark it can get. And I still remember that field trip just because it's so different.
2: Mhm. Uh-huh. Right. You know? So different from the environment that we live in every day.
1: Yeah. So I think you're quote-unquote small drains <laughs> yeah it's not small at all i mean it makes a very big impact for sure yeah.
2: there are people who do that in i think there's a researcher in tennessee and then someone else in california who is doing that and trying to bring school groups into the caves that they work in so uh, it, i can use their model maybe how are caves formed well <laughs> it takes a special kind of rock and water so that water gets dissolved or the water dissolves the rock And you start with a small hole, and you slowly end up with a big hole, and then that becomes a cave. And that same process of water-dissolving rock is what makes the stalagmites and stalactites, because it dissolves the rock that's above the cave, it's all present in the water, and then as the water dries, it makes stalagmites and stalactites.
0: It's like, you describe it, and it seems so simple, and yet it's like, here's this massive thing. Mm -hmm.
1: It's
0: like, nature, how?
1: (laughs) And what it takes years, right? Yeah, like, yeah right. Millions yeah. of years sometimes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I don't know why I thought of this now, but I just thought of that. Um, was it in Thailand? That whole cave thing. Yeah, that where was the, the boys were stuck down there, and then yeah, they had to rescue them.
2: Yeah, and I think at first people were sort of like, I don't know, why can't they just get out of the cave? Or like, you know, what's it like in the cave right now? And I was yeah. just thinking, oh my gosh that's brutal like I have scabs and scars just from where I've fallen in normal caves with lights and food and everything I can't imagine being stuck in one oh Oh my gosh yeah really terrifying
1: Well, I'm glad you're going in with equipment and food. Buddies, yep.
0: (laughs) And a team that will pull you out even if your arm gets dislocated. Exactly.
2: (laughs) As requested.
1: As requested.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's the plan. (laughs) Well, good luck on your next field work. Thank you so much. I'm very
2: excited. I'll post lots of pictures so you can see the (laughs) stalagmites and stalactites.
1: And that's the episode. Thank you, Gabi Serato-Marx, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at gseratomarx on Instagram. And the resources for this episode are on
0: our website.
1: As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram at globalcaveat. And thank you to all
0: of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.